Hey, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have a very special guest who's been here before, but yeah. more importantly, Steve, yes, you were able to make it today, which is totally awesome because I love doing the interviews when it's you and I together. So, man, give us a, just a real quick update. What's going on in Steve's world? Business is absolutely exploding. Last year in 2018, we kind of talked about this in the seven-year anniversary of the show, but my clients quadrupled and uh, 2019 is pretty much exactly the same. Absolutely blowing up. Lots of businesses and authors and ministries starting podcasts and looking to get into radio. And so I'm using my 15 years of, well, really 21 years of working in internationally syndicated radio and 15 years of working for Dr. Dobson to uh, help convert that. And so things are just absolutely blowing up and my time is very limited. So I try and focus on times that you and I actually can get together and interview in person because those are the most fun ones that we do. Yeah, aren't they though? And you know what, as everybody's kind of, you know, mapped and followed our journeys, uh, man, we have been through some highs and lows, come out of my accident, come out of everything you're doing, right? And we have, talk about, we have completely pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps with an incredible amount of prayer and a lot of help. And, you know, it's interesting because we have Jeff Rogers on and our whole topic today is about how do we actually create a thriving family legacy? And I love the topic. And Jeff, I got to tell you, last night, just talking with my boys over dinner, this was a conversation we had just last night, and they were talking about everything that we've gone through as a family and how me and my wife, you know, how we just kept moving forward, having faith and courage, and they were marveling at what we'd accomplished and built as a business just last night. And so I got to tell you, I really believe yeah. that, that, you know, just what you do and how you react to situations and realize that your kids are always watching, that is a huge part of our legacy. So anyway, I thought this conversation this morning was perfect timing, Jeff. Yes. Excellent. Praise the Lord. So you guys might be familiar with Jeff, but let me give you a quick little background and then we're going to dive into some awesome stuff. Our topic today is how to create that a family legacy, a thriving family legacy. Jeff was uh, chosen by Forbes book, which is a big deal. We're going to talk about your book launch because there's some cool stuff happened there. As the author, the book is Thriving Family Legacy, How to Share Your Wisdom and Wealth, both are important, with your children and grandchildren. He's also co-authored Unprepared, Heirs at Risk, 14 Elements for Successful Wealth Transfer. And he also authored a uh, ebook, The Stewardship of your business legacy. So Jeff, you definitely have a focus on uh, legacy. You also uh, founded Stewardship Legacy Coaching. Um, You and I definitely have a number of friends in common and uh, that you're working with. And you got the Larry Burkett Award from Kingdom Advisors, which is their their highest award. And you've been doing what you've been doing for over 35 years in the financial and advisory world, tax planning, charitable planning. And uh, so we're gonna talk about kingdom capital amongst another of other things but you know just to start you know just from people that maybe haven't heard your last episode or it's been a while Jeff share you know some highlights of your journey up till now and maybe you know what led you to really focusing on this what you're passionate about is this book yeah absolutely thanks guys for having me on the eternal leadership podcast it's great to be with you again and with your audience and, you know, as you mentioned, I've been in this space now for a long time, 35 years. Next month will be year 36, so it's, it's amazing. Uh-huh. And uh, during that time, there's, you know, one, one common theme has always been the integration of biblical stewardship, whether it's in the financial advising, tax planning, investment, you know, as you guys mentioned, heavy estate planning and, um, and charitable planning. But one of the things that I've been convinced of over the years is that it's not just about the money and the stuff. It's not just about wealth accumulation, wealth management, or even wealth transfer. One of the things that I've been gripped with, and part of the reason why I wrote Create a Thriving Family Legacy, is this idea that we need to be intentional about uh, sharing the wisdom and life lessons, family values, and virtues with our children and grandchildren so that they can be wise stewards as the next generation of stewards of what God has given to us. And so it's about combining effective wealth transfer with intentional wisdom transfer in the transfer and sharing of family values, much like you guys just did last night over uh, the dinner table with your children, kind of walking along the way, helping them to see 
your ups and downs, uh, the struggles, the how you deal with life circumstances. And there's a lot to be said for that about families journeying through those things together. I think in Deuteronomy, when it talks about when you rise up and when you sit down and as you go along the way, you know, being able to share those things with your children and grandchildren and the testimony of all of God's greatness in the midst of even the difficulties of this life are really critical. And that's, those are some of the reasons why I wrote uh, Create a Thriving Family Legacy. Well, you know, right now, Jeff, I think the opportunity that exists right now for men and women our age, well, I'm 50, you know, in this Gen X baby boomer area, to create a legacy into this next generation, because this next generation that's coming up, the millennials and the generation behind them is one of the biggest generations ever. And they are actually reaching out. If you get to know them and talk with them, they want mentorship and things sewn into them. And they have the potential to be literally, I think, the most incredible and powerful and impactful and kingdom, you know, bunch of kingdom warriors that we've ever seen on this planet. But to enable that, to facilitate that, we have to step into our role, like you talked about, to mentor, to disciple, to actually focus on creating a legacy and i believe that it you know it starts right at home you know with your kids your sons your daughters and i can see that this is something you know what what kind of brought this to the forefront for you that you really turned your focus and your passion you know toward writing this book and equipping people to to start figuring out what it actually looks like to do some of this well the message of create a thriving family legacy is something that god has been nurturing in my heart for about 10 or 15 years and I felt like it was a message that I just it had to be shared with the world, that God wanted me to share it with the world. And part of it is just recognizing that if all we do is pass on wealth to the next generation, it has great ability to harm our children or grandchildren if they don't also have the values and very frankly, virtues, the wisdom to steward it well, if they don't have a sense of purpose for their lives and what God has called them to do and the impact he wants them to have on this world. If it's just about accumulation and having fun and spending money, if that's all it's about, then it's pretty much worthless and actually does more harm than good. I mean, we can look at examples in society, and I'm not going to mention names, but we can all think of some famous people who are second or third generation. You know, their parents or grandparents were super wealthy and they've passed it on and all we have to do is look at the Hollywood tabloids or turn on the TV and we can see the train wreck of some of their lives. And that's tragic. And I believe that no parent or grandparent, certainly no Christian parent or grandparent wants that for their children or their grandchildren. That's not what they want as part of their legacy. And um, so we need to be intentional and proactive. And that's really why I wrote the book, because it's about inspiring people to get two keywords that I yeah. use all the time get intentional, and get proactive. Because I think in too many cases, people are reactive rather than proactive. And they're well-meaning, but they don't carry through on their intentions. And so this is designed to be a catalyst to help them to do that and know what are some of the things we can do in the context of our own family to uh, create the environment where people, you know, next generation, uh, Gen X, millennials, as, as you mentioned, are open to receiving truth and open to hearing that you're really godly values and in an eternal perspective. Yeah, Jeff, in the book, you actually do give two stories, two contrasting families, the Vanderbilts and the Rothschilds, and the differences in which they both approached wealth and passed on that idea of teaching your kids about money and teaching them about purpose. So can you unpack that a little bit more for the listeners, the differences between those two families? Sure. Cornelius Vanderbilt was, so at the time, the wealthiest man in the world. And we can look around the United States and we see Vanderbilt University. We see the Biltmore Estates in North Carolina. We see their mansions up on Long Island. And so there's still kind of a remnant of, I'll call it their, uh, their stone legacy, if you want to look at it that way, their buildings and stuff. But, you know, they really did not transfer values to the next generations very well. And uh, much like some of the Hollywood and Madison Avenue people today, 
that just lived in super abundance, partying and uh, really without values. Uh, Cornelius himself was a driven type A business guy, like most entrepreneurs are, built the wealth from nothing, basically, came from nothing. And along with that, the people have certain values that they have, whether good or bad, as they're building wealth. But if they're not intentional about transferring those values to Gen 2, Gen 3, and so forth, then oftentimes the hardships, there's a quote by Robert Frost that I use in the book. It's an incredible quote. Uh, everybody knows he was a you know, famous poet and American author. And he said, every affluent father wishes he could give him his sons the hardships that made him wealthy. <laughs> and yet when we look at it, that's the opposite of what most people do. Having journeyed with families now for almost 36 years, I've seen that one of the most common statements that people make uh, when they're talking about their estate plan or their legacy is, we want to make the lives of our children easier than what we had it growing up. And the intention of that, I think, is good, and that sounds good, and yet people don't understand the, the harm that that does for their children and grandchildren. If we remove all effort, if we remove all hardship, if we remove all striving from our children or grandchildren, if everybody gets an award, if everybody gets a trophy, right, then they don't have to work. They don't have to become something. They don't have to exert themselves. And, and they never get the character that is needed. And so although we don't want to intentionally put hardship on our children or grandchildren, we don't want to remove all effort and work and hardship yeah. from them either. I like to use an illustration of the caterpillar and the butterfly. And um, we all know this yeah, that's awesome. We were just watching this from, with my uh, grandson, Jeff, two days ago. So I'm glad you brought this up. So I'll, I'll let you run with it. But this is awesome. Excellent. Yeah. So um, we all know from Biology 101 that the caterpillar in the uh, cocoon, if we as a human being come alongside it, we want to make it easier for the caterpillar to get out of the cocoon. We want to remove that hardship and struggle for them. And we break open the cocoon for the caterpillar. What happens to the caterpillar? all the fluids and things that need to be pushed out into its wings so that it can fly. That is a process of it pushing against the chrysalis and it takes a long time yeah. and it's quite a struggle, but that struggle enables them to actually fully develop into what they were meant to be. Yeah, exactly. And so without that struggle, uh, we all know that they actually uh, don't develop their wings. They don't develop the strength. They actually come out deformed. Uh, disabled, if you would, and they ultimately die in early death. And to your point, they never become the beautiful butterflies that they were created to be. And I believe it's the same way with our children and grandchildren. If we remove all struggle, all effort, all work, all hardship from them, very frankly, all learning that comes through the process of the struggling, then we actually harm them more than help them. And so there's a balance there. We want to bless our children. We want to provide the right environment. We want to provide resources and opportunities for them. But we don't want to remove everything from them, just like the caterpillar and the butterfly, because we want our kids and grandkids to grow up to become the beautiful butterflies that God has created them yeah. to be, as it were. So, Jeff, question for you. There was a term, helicopter parent, right? We are always hovering over your kids, making sure they did everything. You're not letting them, you know, you're kind of controlling everything. And that has actually morphed into what they call the lawnmower parent. And that is the parent that's running in front of the, your child, knocking down every obstacle. So they just have a smooth path to walk on. And I think that's really harming this generation coming up. So, you know, when you're working with the family and you see some of those elements of how they are, interacting with their kids. They're in helicopter or lawnmower mode. What are some of the things that you do? Because I'm sure there's a lot of listeners, you know, listening, going, well, you know, we do some of that. Like, what are some of the things that we can start to change that really allow our kids to, you know, start to develop and thrive as their own, you know, their own person? Yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of things um, are uh, helping them to realize that their children or grandchildren need to learn the value of work and uh, very frankly, the value of a dollar. And I think in the helicopter parent and the lawnmower parent roles, they don't do that. They don't learn those important lessons. And that's why we have the whole failure to launch and people that, you know, 
are still living in their parents' basement until they're 30 or whatever, you know, and never really getting a sense of purpose. And so one of the things I like to do is ask the parent or grandparent to tell me a little bit about their story. What was it like growing up? What was their first jobs? And um, how did they learn the value of money? And ultimately, not only to share those stories with me, but to share those stories with their children and grandchildren. And then give them the same opportunities. So, you know, bouncing off your analogy of the helicopter parent and the lawnmower parent, the way I would respond to that is to say, yeah, my parents were lawnmower parents too, but it was different. They said, Jeff, here's the lawnmower. <laughs> your job is to <laughs> cut the grass, right? Your job is to shovel the snow. And, um, yeah, I, I give two examples that are from my own life of things that at the time I thought my parents were so mean. I, you know, I was like the most deprived kid you know, in the neighborhood. And now I look back on it and man, it was such a blessing. And so these are two just simple illustrations. But when I was growing up, my parents were, we were kind of upper middle income. We were not super wealthy, but neither were we poor. We, we never really lacked for anything. And back in my day, most families, uh, this is before Walmart really hit the East Coast, you know, most families shopped at either Sears and Roebuck or JCPenney, one of the two. Those are your two major options. And, and we were a Sears family. And so, you know, we would get uh, new clothes in the spring and the fall for school. And Christmas was the Sears wish book. And, you know, and every appliance in the house was a Kenmore and every tool was a Craftsman, right? So that's what it was like growing up in my world and my family. And, um, you know, I remember getting to be probably somewhere around age 12 would be my guess. And up to that point, my parents had always bought the Sears brand of jeans. They were called Tuscan jeans. And they had these patches on the inside of the knee that I swear were made out of you know, titanium or Teflon or something because you could not <laughs> wear those. You could fall on the asphalt and your knee would be scraped up, but that patch would be intact. And, and we bought the uh, Sears brand of sneakers. They were called the Winners. They were kind of like low-end Converse All-Stars. And uh, I remember you know, getting to maybe age 12 or something. And I wanted to wear Levi's and I wanted to buy Nikes. And, you know, my parents said, Jeff, um, you can have anything that you want, but uh, we're paying for the Sears brand. If you want Levi's or if you want Nikes, you're welcome to buy them. And we'll give you the money that we would have paid anyway for the Sears brand, but you have to go out and earn the difference. And, mm. um, mm. Again, at the time, I thought my parents were mean and, you know, I want to be like all the other cool kids. But now I look back on that because that was the catalyst for me to go out in the neighborhood and start raking leaves and shoveling lawns and doing stuff for neighbors. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons. Not only did I learn uh, the value of work, I learned, you know, the economic transfer that occurs there when you, in a sense, sell your services as a, as a, teenage entrepreneur and somebody uh, you know, pays you. I also learned that if I didn't do a good job, guess what? I didn't get paid. <laughs> People didn't like that. And I learned about a good reputation. You know, Proverbs says a good name is better to be had than great riches. And I would submit to you that if you have a good name, chances are you'll get great riches, right? Because you'll have a good reputation in a business and business will flock to you. And so I learned a lot of really valuable lessons there as a probably even pre-teen. And I think those are things that um, parents could do instead of giving their children every new thing without any work or effort on the part of the children. That's so true. And it really kind of goes, it contrasts that going back to the whole Vanderbilt Rothschild difference. Uh, William Vanderbilt, you, you wrote this in the book, William Vanderbilt said about the family money, it's left me nothing to hope for, nothing definite mm -hmm. to seek or strive for. Inherited wealth is a real handicap to happiness. So Jeff, contrast how the Vanderbilts lost really ultimately their money and how the Rothschilds have really still to this day, almost 300 years, 250 yeah. plus years since the patriarch of the family really started to build his money, how they've been able to pass on the lessons and the ability to manage money. Uh, what have they done that's made them so special and so uh, such a, a mainstay in the world stage? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing us back on track. So first of all, the Vanderbilt, there was a study done just a few years ago, kind of looking at 
you know, the succeeding generations and going from being the wealthiest man in the world, uh, the wealthiest family in the world today, there's not a single millionaire in mm-hmm. the Vanderbilt family. So that's the tragedy there. The Rothschilds, on the other hand, built a strong sense of family. You know, the Meyer Rothschild, they call him the patriarch, you know, basically uh, not only trained each of his sons well, not only from an education perspective, but then really built within them this idea that we are family and we have a family business. And so he sent each of his sons out to kind of major banking cities in Europe, uh, Brussels and London, you know, Frankfurt and Paris and all these different places. And uh, they built this network within the family of knowledge and I'll say even wisdom. And they kind of had their ear to the ground as to what's going on and they could take advantage of opportunities. But one of the key things was not just knowledge and wisdom, but character and what it meant to be a part of the Rothschilds family. And if you look at it, that was exactly wasn't done in the Vanderbilt family. And some of the families that we see TV shows about today, they don't have character, right? And it's that lack of character that ultimately dissipates wealth and destroys families. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When you factor in all the hours it takes to read a single book, it's really an investment. Or if you're like John and listen to audiobooks, even at 1.5 speed, that's even more time. I just downloaded Eric Metaxas' Bonhoeffer on Audible, and it's almost a 23-hour-long book. Well, John and I are big fans of a book summary service called Blinkist. Blinkist has a library of more than 2,500 of the top books on the market. Most of them can be read in less than 15 minutes. So imagine taking all the key thoughts and stories of a book and distilling it down into a 15-minute read. That's what Blinkist does. Whether you're interested in leadership, marketing, entrepreneurship, personal development, sales, management, motivation, psychology, economics, finance, self-help, even marriage, parenting, history, and more, Blinkist has something for just about everyone. If you click the link embedded in the summary of this MP3 or go to eternalleadership.com slash blink, that's eternalleadership.com slash blink, you can try them for a seven-day free trial. And if you subscribe by clicking that affiliate link, it's a great way to help get a great service and help support the cost of editing and hosting this podcast. So go to eternalleadership.com slash blink to check out Blinkist. Thanks. For years, those years that I worked for Dr. Dobson, I focused on the family. I would, because I was the editor for the daily broadcast, I was listening to these broadcasts about passing on a family legacy. And I remember hearing one author that was on the show talk about how whenever his kids would leave the house, he would basically commission them by reminding them, hey, remember, you're a member of this family and you are representing us. And so I took that. Mm-hmm. And every time I would drop my sons off at school, we homeschool, but one day a week they go to a charter school. And whenever I, a cottage program at a charter school, and every time I drop them off, every time I say to them, who are you? I remind them who they are and they're a member of this family. And they say, writer boy. And I say, what does that mean? And I've taught them to say back to do good and be awesome. I don't want my kids Mm. to be good. I want them to do good, but I want them to Mm. be the best that they can be. And by commissioning them and telling them that every single time I drop them off, I'm just trying to remind them. And, and sometimes, and now that they're teenagers, they kind of roll their eyes. Uh, but, I, but I try and instill on them to remind them that this is the purpose behind this. I want you to remember who you are whenever you go, not only to school, but everywhere you go. I want you to make an impact. I want you to do good in the world. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, Steve. That's really one of the things that I think needs to be done is to inspire succeeding generations, children and grandchildren, about what it means to be a part of our family. And very frankly, what it means to be an American um, nowadays, that, you know, patriotism, I think we see lack of that in our culture. And not only that, but what's it mean to be a part of the family of God? Because, you know, we ought to be living as ambassadors of Christ statesmanlike, you know, and so, yeah, there's a lot of um, lessons about what it means to be a part of a family and giving them a name to live up to. And there's, you know, another aspect to that uh, in the last, I think it's the last chapter of my book, I talk about this, 
that a legacy is not something you merely leave behind. A legacy is something we have to live out. And so one of the things that when people start getting serious about their family legacy and wanting their kids and grandkids to end up right and live right and to you know, do good and, and to be awesome, like you said, you know, we have to realize that, well, we have to live that out ourselves, right? We have to model that. Yeah, and so yeah. sometimes that means a, a change in us because sometimes yeah. in all of our lives, right, we're not living out what we, the ideals that we hold uh, sacred. And um, so that's a challenge. So in the book, Jeff, you have this section called Living Up the Family Values, and in it are the four V's, vision, virtues, values, and valuables. What each of those are and the difference between virtues and values? Yeah, so great question, because that's something that uh, I find a lot of people use those words interchangeably, and they don't understand the difference. But there is a difference between virtues and values. And so virtues are actually character attributes. And I believe virtues emanate from the character of God and they're unchangeable. Whereas values are changeable. Values can change with society. They can change over time in terms of how we feel about things. And, um, you know, so give an example. Uh, give an example uh, of a value that's changing versus a virtue that doesn't change. Yeah. So uh, integrity or honesty, for example, would be virtues. They're character, and they never change. And really, they emanate from the character of God, who is uh, 100% integrity. <laughs> values, on the other hand, um, I'll give you one that is you know uh, pretty cultural. So back when I was a new believer as a kind of teenager or a preteen, uh, back then, everybody wore a suit to church. And most <laughs> of the women wore a dress to the church, right? And there literally were people that said, you know, got to give Jesus your best, you know, meaning you had to dress, you know, dress in a suit and tie and so forth. And, you know, that's a value. And that was a value that was held dear by many believers in many churches, but it's a value and it changes over time. Today, thank God that uh, value has I, gone I, away. I'm not a dress up Amen. <laughs> amen, man. Me neither. Uh, you know, I wear jeans most Sundays and, and I feel I worship God in a more relaxed manner and without all the pretense of, yes. of dressing up and stuff. And to be honest, uh, I think all of us would agree. I don't think Jesus is impressed with what we wear, whether it's jeans or a suit or whatever. You know, he's not impressed with that. He's very clear. He looks I'm, at our hearts, not the outward, yeah, right? And, but, I'm, and by I'm the reminded, way, I'm uh, reminded, he, sorry to interrupt. I'm reminded of the Jesus talking to the Pharisees about the whitewashed cups. Your outside's nice and clean, but the inside is dirty. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I would put it this way that, you know, Jesus hung around people called Levi, but he never wore Levi's, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> anyway, just saying. <laughs> Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, dudes. <laughs> but that's an example. And, you know, today, and I don't want to make this political, and I know you guys don't either, but there are people from the left or liberal perspective who hold values, and those are their values. They believe them strongly. They adhere to them. They advocate for them strongly, and those are their values. My values happen to be different than theirs, but they're my values. And what we need to get back to is what are the virtues? What are the non-changeable things? Character, things that emanate from the heart of God. And we need to care more about virtues and very frankly, less about values and preferences. Now, that said, values are good. Values are important. And I believe that parents, and that's why I put the four V's in the book, uh, we ought to be intentional about sharing and transferring and living out both our, vir you know, the virtues, but also values. But it all starts with the first V, which is vision, which is, you know, what do we have for a vision as a couple, as the leaders within our family? What is our vision for the future of our family and future generations? What do we want to see them be like? I love the way you put it, to do good. And to be awesome, I think was the way you put it. Yep. And that's both being and doing. And, um, you know, it's short, it's concise, but it's powerful. It gives 
a vision for your children and very frankly, their children to live up to. This is what it means to be a part, you know, of the writer family. And um, I think that's cool. And every family ought to figure out what is our vision for our family and how can we practically go about inculcating that in the hearts and lives of our kids and grandkids. And so I talk in the book about, and you guys can't see me, you know, because this is audio only, but I'm pointing up at my head and then down at my heart. But what's up here in your head and what's down here in your heart Mm -hmm. that needs to be shared and inculcated in the lives of your children and grandchildren? And uh, if we can begin to kind of determine what are those key life lessons that we've learned the values, the wisdom that uh, we've gotten maybe from good mentors in our lives, whether it's parents or grandparents or teachers or coaches or whoever, pastors. Uh, Maybe it's life lessons that we learned through the school of hard knocks, mistakes that we've made. But those are valuable lessons that we've learned wisdom from. We know we never want to make that mistake again. Well, wouldn't it be cool if our kids and grandkids don't have to make those same mistakes because they hear the story of our journey and they hear about the mistakes that we've made and we're vulnerable enough to do that and uh, not try to act like we've been perfect all our lives because we're not and there, there was only one who ever was and we're not him. You know, that's a good point. I think, uh, you know, I have three boys. They're 21, 19, and 15 now, Jeff. And we've learned, especially through my accident and just kind of looking at life differently, that extreme vulnerability and just sharing you know, some of the good and bad decisions, how we reacted to things that we've gone through, what we learned from it with our kids have led to some incredible conversations. I want to ask you, you know, you talk about the three marks of a good legacy plan. And the mark number one was, will your children still be hugging each other six months after you die? You know, one of the things that we've been sowing into our kids since they were young, because my wife and I neither really had this relationship with our siblings, was that they're going to absolutely be their best friends with each other their whole life, that friends and acquaintances and work workmates are going to come and go, but family is permanent. And, you know, you guys mm-hmm. are going to be best man in each other's weddings. You guys are going to go on vacations when mom and I are gone with your wives. We've been talking about this with our kids since they are young. And I got to yeah. tell you, our boys have a friendship and a relationship as I watch them together that's amazing. But I've also, and I'm sure you've seen this, Jeff, you know, mom and dad pass away. And, you know, even a family without a lot of wealth, I'm thinking of a family that there was a mantle clock that had been um, their dad's that he got from his grandpa. And all the kids wanted it. Well, mom and dad at one point had said to one of the kids, hey, you can have that when we're gone. And it led to such a fight that none of their four kids now even will talk to each other. And it all came from this clock. So think about some of the things that we can be doing now to create that legacy that our kids have those relationships, that love, that trust, that they'll be hugging each other and serving each other versus constantly battling with each other. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to your point, John, a lot of times it's not about the really valuable stuff. It's about the sentimental stuff, like that mantle clock. um, Or, you know, I've literally seen Christian kids fighting over who's going to get mom or dad's Bible when they, after they're gone or fighting over, you know, which was dad's favorite hymn to be sung at the funeral and they destroy relationships with each other over it. And so, yeah, it's really important that we really go about building that again, what it means to be part of a family and the fact that uh, uh, there's stuff that's really more important than the money and the stuff and go about intentionally creating a plan that, uh, that is going to promote peace within our family. And so, yeah, we talk about the three hugs, which I learned from a friend and mentor of mine named Ray Line of Lifestyle Giving. Uh, Ray's up in uh, his 80s now, has Parkinson's, and, and, uh, but he's uh, done development work for many, many ministries over the years. But he, he talks about these three hugs. Uh, one is, will your children still be hugging each other six months after they die? The second one is, will there be people in heaven uh, hug, giving you a hug because they are there partly because of your influence. Either you led them to Christ or maybe you gave to a ministry or church that led them to Christ, but they're there partly because of your in, influence and they're going to give you a hug. And then third is, will we get a hug from our Heavenly Father? In other words, will we hear, well done, 
by good and faithful servant. I like to call that the getting the high five in heaven. Because I don't know about you, but I picture, you know, when I get there at the Bema seat, that um, Lord willing, I'm trying to live my life this way, that I'm going to hear that well done. And I picture it like uh, I'm starting, I'm running toward the throne and Jesus gives me a high five. And that's how I want to live my life. And we ought to inspire our children and grandchildren. that, that That's how they ought to want to live their lives, to hear that well done. Yeah, I love that vision of a heavenly high five. And, you know, I also have this vision someday that, you know, you're sitting there with Christ. He's just looking at you in your eyes, these just loving eyes. Like, it's just the most special moment. And he kind of turns you outwards and shows you all those people that you need to go get a hug from because you, because of what you did and how you lived your life are there partly because of that influence. I think that's a beautiful day. I think the sad part that I hope he doesn't show me is all the people that I could have touched, but didn't because of choices that I made. But you know, that, that also is something that's front of mind, you know, also as I'm going through life. Now, everybody out there, you know, building a family legacy, you know, it's the one thing that's going to live on. I remember, laying on what I thought was my deathbed, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking about, you know, next weekend is my funeral. And I started thinking of inheritance, right? All the financial things that I was going to leave to my wife and my kids. And, you know, these were things that I was going to give to them. And then I started thinking about legacy though. And I started thinking, you know, what have I left in them that's going to outlive me mm-hmm. in my wife and in my kids and in my friends and colleagues and in this world you know, had I lived my life so the use of my life would outlive my life. And I got to tell you, in that moment, I was really convicted and knew that I needed to personally make some very significant changes to actually create a legacy. And on your website, and so everybody, if you want to work on this, and I think this is something everybody should do, in my opinion, the website is thrivingfamilylegacy.com. And you have a free family legacy assessment, and you can actually get some feedback and determine where your family is. Are they thriving? What are some areas that could already improve? And is there other ways they can get in touch with you or find out more about the book and what you're doing, Jeff? Yeah, on our uh, other website, stewardshiplegacy.com, we uh, offer some free sample chapters of the book if they want to get those to start reading while they order the book. And then for those that order a book, we've got a thank you uh, with a, a free downloadable legacy journal that helps ask them specific questions that they can be thinking about and walking through related to their own family. And then there's also, a, you mentioned earlier, a business legacy ebook specifically for business owners. But some people also feel like they need a guide to help them navigate the complexities of their family legacy, the relational issues or the wealth transfer or tax issues, the how do we go about being intentional and proactive in creating transfer of wisdom and family virtues and values. And so some people feel like they need a guide. And so they could just contact us through our website, stewardshiplegacy.com, or call us at 470-1412, and they could uh, schedule a free uh, phone consultation or video conference like what we're doing here today on Zoom. Jeff, one of my favorites, and we'll, we'll we'll close out the broadcast with this, Jeff. One of my favorite pastors and leaders in recent church history, and I mean recent in terms of the last 200 years, is Charles Spurgeon. And you have this amazing quote on page 143, I think that summarizes really this entire interview. Can you read that for the listeners? Sure. Here's what Spurgeon said. Anxiety about our family is natural, but we should be wise if we turn it into care about our own character. If we walk before the Lord in integrity, we shall do more to bless our descendants than if we bequeath them large estates. A father's holy life is a rich legacy for his sons. The upright man leaves his heirs his example, and this in itself will be a mine of true wealth. How many men may trace their success in life to the example of their parents? He leaves them also his reputation. Men think better of us as the sons of a man who could be trusted, the successors of a tradesman of excellent reputation. Oh, that all young men were anxious to keep up the family name. Above all, he leaves his children his prayers and the blessings of a prayer-hearing God. And these make our offspring to be favored among the sons of men. 
God will save them even after we are dead. Oh, that they might be saved at once. Our integrity may be God's means of saving our sons and daughters. If they see the truth of our religion proved by our lives, it may be that they will believe in Jesus for themselves. Lord, fulfill this word to my household. Boom. Great words by the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. So as I read Spurgeon's words, I was inspired that this is the type of legacy that godly people will want to leave to their children and grandchildren. And um, so it really means living out our lives with faithfulness and integrity and uh, authenticity, as you mentioned earlier, John. So that's what create a thriving family legacy, uh, how to share your wisdom and wealth with your children and grandchildren is all about. Thank you for that. And that is definitely something to meditate on. And here's the good news is with a little bit of intentionality, with some focus, with things, you know, that you're doing, like you heard what Steve does with his kids and just having what I call a dinner table education and some conversations where you require the kids to put the phone away and even just talk about some of these. What's the difference between a virtue and a value? There's so many little things that we can do to actually just start shaping how we're just sewing into and mentoring and discipling and creating that legacy with our kids. Um, and that's something we can do with other people in our life. So Jeff, thank you for what you're doing. You know, it is so needed and uh, man, we just wish you well. If there's anything we can do for you, man, just let us know. Thanks John and Steve for having me on the eternal leadership podcast. <laughs>